You are listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. Hello, uh, my name is Dr. Matthew Morgan, and I'm talking to you from the Australian Catholic University in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. And I'm joined here by... Hi, I'm Dr. Shannon Dodd, uh, also from Australian Catholic University, based in Brisbane, Queensland as well. Thanks, Shannon. So Shannon and I work uh, quite closely together um, on campus. We have very similar research philosophies. So my, um, I suppose my area of research um, interest is policing vulnerable populations. I mean, by and large, anyone who really comes into contact with the police, most people who come into contact with the police are vulnerable in one way, uh, one way, shape or another, either as a victim of crime or after having a mental illness or cognitive diversity. Uh, and Shannon, do you want to talk a little bit about your research ed- agenda? Yeah, so a lot of my research is focused on corrections. Recently, for example, I was involved in a study in relation to people with disability mm. in prisons in Australia to better understand uh, the experiences of people with intellectual disability um, predominantly while they're in a really kind of violent carceral space. Um, more recently, I've also moved into areas of youth justice with a program in the regional city and townsville, which we may touch on a little bit later. Thanks, Shannon. So we understand that um, this series of podcasts for uh, NCJ is around cognitive diversity and mental illness within the criminal justice system and practices. Um, and it's kind of in the limelight quite uh, at the moment, particularly here in Australia. Um, I don't know, international viewers have, have probably heard this news as well um, mm-hmm. about this 95-year-old um, late old uh, old lady with, with dementia who was tasered by mm-hmm. a police officer in uh, New South Wales. Um, in yes. Home. And unfortunately, she subsequently uh, passed away um, as a result of those injuries. So we wanted to start today's discussion talking about um, that case, that particular case study, and then we're going to kind of try and relate it to our own experiences um, with our research. Um, so, yeah, do you want to talk a bit, a bit about that, Shannon, or maybe? Yeah, so um, our viewers will um, probably, unfortunately, have heard of the case in May this year uh, involving Claire Noland. So Claire's a 95-year-old woman, mm-hmm. as you said, in an aged care facility in New South Wales. Police were called. Um, Claire, as we understand, has dementia. Uh, Police were called because she um, somehow got her hands on a steak knife uh, and was perhaps, you know, seen as threatening or kind of at risk. So police turned up. uh, Claire did move around with the help of a walker. uh, And the unfortunate police response in that case was to actually engage a taser. uh, And in which case she fell and hit her head, suffered some kind of brain bleed and subsequently died. It's been a really controversial case, of course, given those circumstances and also because the body-worn camera footage hasn't yet been released. The police officer in that case uh, was a 33-year-old senior constable. He has been charged with a number of offences, yet to be seen what is actually going to eventuate in that case. I was interested in talking to you, Matt, about this given your research and trying to understand how on earth a police officer thinks that the best response to de-escalate a situation is actually to employ a taser. And I want your thoughts on whether this is 
you know, um, kind of evidence that maybe there's an issue with police training or is there some other kind of issue at play here? Yeah, it's a good, good question, Shannon. So I know we spoke about this a few weeks ago and um, <clears throat> a few ABC journalists contacted me to get my thoughts on this as well. Um, and every time something like this happens, well, this is a very rare case, like tasering a 95-year-old lady is, is not common police practice. We know that. Um, but every time that somebody dies in the in police custody who had some kind of cognitive disability or mental illness, um, it, it, it resurfaces um, issues of are police trained appropriately? And normally, you know, I would contextualize those cases as no, they're not trained appropriately. They're actually given conflicting training in relation to uh, one hand. And if this from from research I've done with um, police here in Australia is that they get taught that communication is your first use of force tactic. Um, you de-escalate via communication t- uh, skills. But on the other hand, you also get taught that if anyone pulls an edged weapon, such as in this case, a bread knife, you then you first draw a firearm and then you talk. So communicating whilst you've got your taser point or, or, or uh, your gun, as we have here in Australia, our, our police do carry guns, our general duties officers do carry guns. It's going to be pretty difficult de-escalating that situation uh, when someone's not really um, compost mentis and they're not, you know, staring down the barrel of a gun. Now, in this particular case, Shannon, I don't think it's indicative um, of or police training, all those contradictions I mentioned. I think this is such an extreme case um, that I think it's something more to it because what was surprising was that the police officer who tasered this elderly lady wasn't a rookie police officer fresh out of the academy. He was, uh, in fact, had 15 years years service. Mm -hmm. And from some of the research that I'd done with interviews with police officers around... um, mental health response and de-escalating mental um, persons with mental illness and crisis, they tell you what I found was that the more experience you have equates to the better you are at doing this job. Mm-hmm. So they say training is useless. You know, the academy is useless. What I How I learned how to do this was through trial and error. You do it badly a few times and you realize maybe that forcing compliance um, and coercion are not the best tactics because you're going to get your hands dirty. You're going to end up in situations like this. So for experience, police officers generally learn how to communicate effectively with people in crisis. So I was quite shocked to realise that this this police officer had 15 years' experience. So without being across all the details of the case, as Mm -hmm. it's not um, probably been reviewed yet, I actually think this is something else at play here. Maybe this is a jaded police officer who was tired of coming uh, coming to this job time and time again. And from some of my research... This is what I've found in talking to other key stakeholders, such as carers, um, people who work, uh, caseworkers who work in um, boarding accommodation for homeless people, is that they find that police get very, very frustrated being called in time and time again. Now, I'm not saying that's what's happening in this situation because we don't know those details, but I would be very surprised if it wasn't the case that this police officer has probably responded to this lady or similar cases in this nursing home several times where maybe he just got extremely frustrated and just drew his his taser and electrocuted this poor lady, um, which obviously is not a good look for the service. Um, and, of course, it's had repercussions across, uh, across the world. 
Yeah, definitely. As you said, you know, we rely on police to keep the community safe, but also to appropriately use force and to be able to effectively de-escalate situations. And so it really does beg the question why a 95-year-old woman with dementia who relies on a walker or a walking frame to actually get around, how much of a risk she could have realistically posed. And surely there were other tools in that officer's toolkit, so to speak, that could have been used to more appropriately deal with that situation. Yeah, and that's it, Shannon. It begs the question of why did the carers call the police in the first place? Like, they wouldn't be, they would know that this lady is 95 years old. Uh, and really, how much damage can she do when she's on a walk with a bread knife? Maybe you just retreat, just close the door. People will naturally de-escalate themselves. Um, it can take hours, you know, once they just get tired. Um so it begs the question of why were the police called to this situation? And is this really the police role? Um, because we've seen in the past few decades a, um, a re-identification of what the police role actually is, from going from a crime-fighting organisation to now being uh, a social services first responders to uh, like de facto mental health responders because of the closure of uh, the long-stay asylums and deinstitutionalization across the Western world, um, we haven't really reinvested those resources back into the community so persons with mental illness and cognitive, cognitive diversity can actually get the treatment they need in the community. And then there's the police who have to pick up the pieces. Now, this is a bit different, the case we're talking to, because this was in an institutional care setting, Um where you would hope that there are people there who know how to talk to this lady and know her well and know how to de-escalate and speak to her family and all the rest of it. Um, So it's a very interesting case and it's very unique in that sense. Um, But when something like this happens, public trust and confidence, the police is diminished, it's destroyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's interesting to see the police response um, from here on because um, I'm just... So, yeah, it is a very unique case um, that speaks volumes um, and has had repercussions, as we were saying earlier, for the trust and confidence in police uh, in Australia. Certainly. So that was one case that we spoke about from May of this year that happened in New South Wales. But there was also another case that happened a bit closer to home for both of us here in Queensland. Uh, And it also happened last month in May 2023. Now, in that case, it was a 29-year-old First Nations man who was shot at home by police. They'd been called after some reports that he had stabbed his father in the hands uh, and they alleged that he approached police with a knife uh, and they discharged, I believe, three shots uh, and he ended up passing away, unfortunately. Perhaps the interesting part of that case was that uh, just the day before that, authorities had been called Uh, And so there was an awareness that this young man had some mental health issues. Um, Whether or not police were aware of that or not, I'm not sure. But it just highlights that perhaps even in cases where police should know that they are about to enter a situation with someone with mental illness, uh, things are still going terribly wrong. uh, And it has, in that case, again, resulted in the death of that person. Is that type of case... Uh, more kind of symbolic of the usual way that these cases can go when it comes to police? And why do you think that things can go so wrong? Yeah, it's a good question, Shannon. I think, thankfully, police shootings of anyone are quite rare in Australia. Uh, we don't really have the same problems they've got in the US. But 
And we know that persons with mental illness are significantly overrepresented in all police fatalities and other custodial-related deaths. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a couple of issues with this particular case that we can draw upon. First is the overlap in um, vulnerabilities and marginalisation. So you've got mental illness combined with indigeneity. So we know that the indigenous community, um, well, communities in Australia have a significantly lack of trust with the police. Um, and that's historic. We know that, you know, police and started, the formal police, and as we know, it started in this country um, during colonisation to protect white settlers from, um, you know, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are resistant to um, invasion. And so there's been a lack of mistrust now for 250 years. So armed police showing up to someone as a mental health crisis, it's only going to exacerbate that situation for the individual because, first mm-hmm. and foremost, they've probably seen their friends and family being um, mishandled by the police. And this individual is probably not thinking straight because he is obviously in a mental health crisis. So when police show up, they've already got a difficult time de-escalating that situation based on the visual presence of the uniform alone. So we've got a, 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 very, a police have a very strong identity where, you know, the, the taser, the baton, the gun, the mace, these things don't really signify peaceful intentions. Um, they're there to fight crime. So you see something like that coming at you when you are already in a heightened emotional state, well, could potentially exacerbate your emotional state, which then exacerbates the emotional state of the officer. And then you get this problem where, you know, fatalities arise um so yeah it is indicative of a lack of training but i think training is the best place to look to sort these problems out yeah i think it is um i think like i said it's the wrong response um it's the wrong tool for the job purely based on you know the police uniform was what i said earlier so again it gets back to what i was talking about earlier with that you know are we going to redefine the police role as elongated from crime fighters to also encompassing a welfare facet or do we do something like a co-responder model um which we'll i thought we'll, we'll come to now actually shannon yeah because uh, we'll be looking at those recently with some research that we're tying up with um and co-responder models really are um best practice it's that perfect melting pot of police responding but in the team with mental health practitioners and sometimes even a paramedic. So we know to that case that you mentioned then, Shannon, yes, the individual was armed and he stabbed somebody. So there is a police issue there. There's a safety concern there. Okay, a crime has been committed. But we also know that there's a mental health component there. So there's a health component there. So if police and ambulance and or mental practitioners respond together, police can take a background approach, just observe the safety of everyone involved, of the individual, people around the area, and let uh, the mental health professional do the talking, be on the front line, um, a non-uniformed presence without all that weaponry. Um, that signifies a much more peaceful intention as someone who's specifically trained to de-escalate um, therapeutically. Certainly. And I think in cases like that where there was an awareness that there was a mental health issue or crisis occurring, then certainly that seems to be the best response. Now, yeah. that information is not always going to be available uh, and probably because of resources, it's not always possible to have co-responder teams out there. Um, but certainly, as you said, I think it is a good step forward. Yeah. Uh, it's one of the methods in which we can try and improve criminal justice responses 
to people who have mental uh, illness or suffering some sort of mental crisis. Yeah, absolutely, Sean. And I think, you know, we're talking about police here, we're talking about gatekeepers to the criminal justice system as a whole. Uh, I know your research is much more based on the back end of the criminal justice system, mm-hmm. you know, uh, corrections, um, but it is the police who are opening that door to the court processes and then on to prisons. So I think if there were more correspondent models, there would be more diversion um, and there'd be less. And we know prison populations, well, in every aspect of the criminal justice system is significantly overrepresented with, with persons with mental illness and cognitive disorders and poor people and indigenous people and ethnic minorities. We all know that, that that's the case. And if, if police were one better trained and two um, co-responded um, a team up with that interagency collaboration, perhaps we wouldn't see situations where the other, it, it exacerbates the crises and someone gets shot and killed or someone gets arrested and spends a night in a watch house um, to calm down. It's not the most therapeutic environment for someone. So I suppose maybe we could just touch upon your, your research area in terms of the back end of the criminal justice system and what you've seen with your research. Because um, I've never had a look at the area. I've always looked at the front end. Yeah, yeah. Well, so as you said, police are the gatekeepers to the criminal justice system and how they deal or don't deal with issues at that front end has an important flow-on effect when it comes to the back end of the system. So some recent research that I did was interested in people with disability. Now, that could be physical disability, but much more often an intellectual or cognitive disability. Uh, And looking at some of the issues that can be faced when people with disability are held in places like prisons. Now, we know from research, both in Australia and internationally, that yes, people with cognitive disability are overrepresented in prison populations. What we didn't know uh, about as much was in terms of the experience of imprisonment for people with disability. And that's specifically what part of our research focused on. So we uh, spoke to stakeholders who worked at that intersection between corrections uh, and disability, and we asked them about what the experience of imprisonment might be for someone with a cognitive impairment. Uh, And unfortunately, although perhaps not unexpectedly, it was all pretty well a bad news story. So firstly, we heard that people with disability and corrections typically aren't even very well identified. Uh, In corrections, they, uh, at least in Australia, they're not typically trying to assess uh, or identify if a person has a cognitive disability. Often they rely on self-reporting, and we know that people going into a very volatile environment like a prison aren't likely to put their hand up and identify areas of weakness uh, or areas um, that uh, could be the uh, subject of shame and stigma. So instead, they typically rely on correctional officers or custodial officers to identify if a person has a disability. Now, that's problematic too because uh, those personnel typically aren't uh, trained when it comes to disability. Uh, And it's also very difficult to correctly identify the difficulties uh, that somebody might have and also to be able to identify the support needs that they may have. So that was the first issue that we identified is that people who are going into prison uh, with disability typically aren't even very well identified. The second issue then was, well, what happens while a person serves a period of imprisonment in a correctional facility uh, and has a disability? 
And there we found that, you know, there just aren't really adjustments made to help support that person. What we did often hear was that there was a reliance on what uh, interviewees would call kind of peer support workers, which were simply other prisoners who either out of the goodness of their heart or sometimes for more sinister reasons uh, may assist a person with a disability to uh, kind of adapt and manage in that prison environment. Now, of course, the concern is that that can raise uh, a number of issues. It makes a person very vulnerable to abuse, neglect or victimization. It also creates some power imbalances uh, in an environment that I said is already very volatile and that can leave somebody exposed to a range of different harms. So there were some of the big issues that we raised. Certainly the question that that, that left uh, for us was why is more not being done to help people with intellectual disability while they are in prison? But perhaps even taking a step back from that saying, well, why are so many people with a disability ending up in prison in the first place? Why aren't there supports in the community? Uh, why is there not better identification starting with police and with others to identify these individuals and give them the support that they need rather than thrusting them into these spaces like prisons, which uh, themselves can be very disabling? So that's some of the research that I've done in that area recently in terms of the back end of the criminal justice system. Thanks, Shannon. There's some really interesting points there because like we were talking about earlier with the deinstitutionalization of mental health services, prisons have now been labeled as, you know, the psychiatric institutions of the 21st century. They're actually calling it reinstitutionalization or trans and trans institutionalization where police are now serving as those what, who were once, you know, those individuals in, in white coats who'd pull up in a van and take you off to the asylum, you'd never be seen again. The police are now fulfilling that role as de, fa de facto mental practitioners. And maybe either one for a lack of resources are arresting persons with mental illness or cognitive disabilities, or two, most likely not really recognising that, and then sending them through the court system. And then they'll be recognised then, as you said, then they get into the prison system and they're not going to disclose that information because it's a sign of weakness. Um and then it's left up to the prison guards to then also be de facto mental health practitioners to try and identify these individuals who um, are in there who may have a cognitive disability. And if they're in there for that reason, they committed an offence for that reason, then there is a lack of mens rea there. We know there's no guilty mind, there's no culpability. Um, so it's that it's that distinction that, again, from my, my perspective with the police, is trying to differentiate between disordered behavior and disorderly behavior mm. um, it's very tricky to do for a police officer can you train a police officer to be a mental professional i don't really think you can can you train um your prison guards to be mental professionals no it's not it's the wrong fit for it so i think the grand narrative here is that not just looking at deinstitutionalization, but looking at the change of social economic policies and the, and the rise of neoconservatism, not just in Australia, but in the UK and the US, where all problems now are seen as police problems, yeah. uh, all social problems are seen as police problems. There's not really enough serve mental health services in the community to deal with them. Um, and they're finding their way into, again, being reinstitutionalized into large prison environments which basically are serving as the old um, standalone asylums from from the past which in Australia didn't really close down until 
the uh, late nineties and the early noughties. Um, but the idea of the deinstitutionalization came about in the nineteen sixties when there was, you know, society was very different. It was wealthy. It was, um, it was, you know, peace, love, and happiness. It was a lot more socialist than it is now. The welfare state was strong. Now we've got neoliberalism. When the process finished, that money was never reinvested into the community. And you, know, you don't have to speak to too many people who have family members with or people who have serious mental or complex mental problems. Say navigating that piecemeal system is an absolute nightmare. But when people with complex mental health problems don't get the treatment that they need and they begin to treat themselves with drugs and alcohol, that's when we get mental health crises and police getting called out to these problems and then finding their way into the prison system. Definitely. And it kind of uh, goes back to some of the other research that we did in relation to that project on people with disability in prison. You know, here in Australia now we have the federal system, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS. And so that's there to fund that support for people who have the most complex uh, needs in terms of disability. The interesting thing, though, was um, that research was really motivated by the question of what happens to an NDIS package and that disability support if a person is in custody? Uh, And so that was something that we spoke to stakeholders working at that intersection about, and there was really no clear answer. Uh, And people said, look, yeah, on occasion uh, I've had, I've worked with an individual with a disability in prison. Some level of support has continued while they're in the care of corrections. Uh, But overwhelmingly what we heard was that support ceases. It's like there's a big pause button that's hit. uh, And while you're in the care of corrective services, which is a state-based funding model, then you're their problem. You're not the problem of the federally funded uh, NDIA system. So that was another issue that we put people in these very uh, debilitating, volatile environments like prisons. uh, And then we actually stopped the services or support that they were receiving in the community for their disability. Uh, And then there was surprise when the person would, you know, their behavior uh, or their well being would deteriorate. And surprise as if, well, why is that happening? Well, of course, that's a likely consequence, uh, both of the environment, but then the lack of support. So there are a whole range of issues that are happening here, certainly not just police, um, but in all aspects of our criminal justice system. As you said, yes, you know, it's not fair to expect police or correctional uh, officers to be experts in everything. Uh, But there are certainly some even minor improvements perhaps that could be made to uh, help the situation improve perhaps quite dramatically. Yeah, thanks, Shannon. And I think I just want to change gears slightly here uh, because we've got about 10 minutes left, uh, eight or 10 minutes left to, along that vein, talk about the research that we've been doing up in North Queensland in a, a place called Townsville. Um, because that is involved with vulnerable populations such as young Indigenous kids uh, in relation to joyriding. And we know that a lot of these kids have cognitive disorders uh, and come from very troubled homes uh, and have very negative interactions and experiences and perceptions of the police. Um, So should we talk a little bit about that programme to finish off? Um, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so as you said, Townsville's in, uh, it's a regional city in North Queensland, population of maybe just less than 200,000. They do have, um, you know, a higher proportion of First Nations communities in and around that area. 
Uh, and like some other uh, places around Queensland and Australia, and I'm sure internationally as well, they have quite a significant issue with young people uh, stealing cars, getting in them to drive dangerously, to joyride is what we colloquially call that. Uh, and sometimes, of course, that ends in disaster. You know, so in Townsville, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a car crash, uh, a stolen car, uh, where four young uh, First Nations uh, kids unfortunately died. We've also seen some vigilante issues arising too. Uh, so, for instance, there was one man who took chase after his stolen car uh, and in doing so actually crashed with a female motorcyclist and she died. So it's a really significant issue in that community. Uh, and so we uh, were fortunate enough to receive some funding from the Queensland government to basically design uh, and deliver a program in Townsville over a six-week period where we had young kids who were either um, considered at risk of engaging of these behaviours or were known to be engaging already. And we took them through a program which combined educational components with what we called kind of hands-on or recreational components as well. So the educational sessions, as you know, we had different expert speakers. We had an emergency room doctor. We had a First Nations uh, child psychologist. We had members from the Queensland Police. Uh, and even a local sportsman who's a bit of a hero in the community. And so we had these individuals talk to our participants about basically the reasons why you don't want to engage in these behaviours because of the physical harms, the legal harms, but also talking about how to be a good role model, uh, you know, how to have empathy for others, how to regulate negative emotions. We combined that, as I said, with recreational activities so there was a high ropes course. We went to a golf driving range. And importantly, we had a couple of sessions at a paddle beating workshop where we figured if these young people have an interest in cars, let's harness that interest and let them get hands-on on the tools in a real workshop, a workshop where uh, a large percentage of the cars there have actually been cars that were stolen and damaged and were awaiting uh, you know, getting fixed and back to the owners. And that aspect ended up being a very important part of our program, as you know, uh, and, you know, we reaped some important benefits through those panel beating sessions uh, in particular. Yeah, and I was there for those panel beating sessions and when we're doing our participant observation. And what we noticed was that with some of the some of the kids that we were working with, those disadvantaged kids, a lot of them weren't attending school or they're only attending flexibly at school. Uh, a lot of them had very um, poor literacy skills and academic skills. But when we got them into that environment and they were able to work with their hands and work on cars that they were so deeply passionate about, even the ones with the cognitive disabilities did a fantastic job and it, 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 it opened doors for them. And that is how we believe that we're going to end this cycle of, of crime is by providing opportunities for these individuals. Um, but also talking about um, the police, they also had very negative perceptions of the police, which is, is is problematic because we've heard in some instances where these joyriders actually egg the police on to chase them um, for an extra buzz and through lack of respect and trust of the police. And the police that we brought in goes back to that co-responder model that we spoke about earlier, where police were actually 
teaming up with youth justice professionals. So there comes an interagency collaboration again, where the police are now identifying um, available state agencies and non-state agencies um, to utilize their skills in being able to respond more effectively and proactively to community problems. Because uh, we know that locking kids up in youth detention centers, as the government in Queensland is insistent on doing, just creates more criminals and creates more crime in the community. And it's at, that, at the expense of the taxpayer um, and and also um, families involved. Um, so we're still evaluating that program. Um, so yeah. watch the space. Um, and did you want to add anything else, Shannon, before yeah. we round? I think it's important, you know, I think more and more so perhaps police services and agencies are realising that alone they can't solve all crime problems. Absolutely. And it's important to harness the expertise of other agencies so as you said, the co-responder model there, bringing youth justice workers together with police. Now, they're available 24-7. Uh, the police even hand out a wristband that has a telephone number that young people can call yeah. for free and say, look, you know, um, things are bad at home. I'm out on the street. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried I'm going to make some bad decisions, hang out with some wrong people or do whatever. Uh, and it's helping to bridge that gap. And as you said, yes, many of our participants had had negative experiences with police they had negative perceptions about police. Part of our program was hoping to break down some of those barriers and say, look, police aren't just here to be chasing and pursuing you when you've done something wrong, but actually you can look to them for help, for assistance, for understanding. And we're really hoping that through doing that uh, and also, as I said, using the expertise and the knowledge of youth justice personnel as well, that it's a more proactive and I guess progressive way of trying to address issues of youth crime rather than picking them up, sending them through court, uh, having them locked up in you know juvenile detention centers, which for one young person in a year costs about seven hundred thousand dollars to the taxpayer. Uh, and so certainly we would argue that the better way forward is to take those resources and invest in community-based initiatives, uh, and and other things to really provide a more holistic response and support young people so that they can, uh, you know, really meet expectations and do their best in life and really turn things around. Thanks, Shannon. I think we'll have to wrap it up there. I think the take-home message from our chat today really is proactiveness as opposed to reactiveness, not just for the police, but in all aspects of the criminal justice system and in government responses, uh, keeping people out of um, out of the criminal justice system who have mental illness and cognitive disabilities and other uh, vulnerabilities really is key to addressing this issue. Um, so thanks everyone for listening. Uh, I've been Matthew Morgan and this is Shannon Dodd from the Australian Catholic University. Um, enjoy your day. You have been listening to the INCJ podcast, conversations about international criminal justice. To find out more, go to our website at criminaljusticenetwork.net or follow us on Twitter at INTCJ Network.